Back in episode three, I told you about some animals that were either so common or in the case of possums, basically so seldom seen that we tend to take them for granted. Today, I want to add to that list of overlooked critters by telling you about some other overlooked animals, deer, skunks, raccoons, and groundhogs. Like possums, raccoons and skunks are generally nocturnal, so they're rarely seen. Groundhogs spend a lot of their time underground, and deer have become a fairly common sight in all but the most urban of landscapes. Frequently, these animals are considered pests because they get into trash, they eat garden plants, or they just cause a stink. But they all have a place in the ecosystem, and there's something interesting about all of them that I'm betting you might not know. So let's make like a groundhog and dig into some of the more overlooked and underappreciated animals. Deer, skunks, raccoons, and groundhogs. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. Unless raccoons get into your trash, skunks leave their lingering scent, and deer or groundhogs nibble on your vegetable garden, you might not even know they're nearby. Now granted, deer are a little harder to miss, but they survive in some pretty well-populated areas. And, as the saying goes, out of sight, or in the case of skunks, out of scent, out of mind. Most of the time, we don't give much thought to these animals if they're not causing us any problems. But like the other overlooked animals that I talked about in episode 3, there's some fascinating things to be learned about these critters. And some of what we think we know may not be completely true. So let's take a closer look. I'm going to start with deer since they're generally the largest and most visible. Specifically, I want to talk about white-tailed deer because they're the most widespread. They can be found throughout most of the United States, southern Canada, and south all the way through Mexico, Central America, and into South America. In fact, the white-tailed deer is the national symbol of Costa Rica. And given that large range, you can assume that they're adapted to a wide variety of habitats, from forests to grasslands and swamps to deserts. Size-wise, deer follow what's called the Bergman rule. They tend to be larger in the colder parts of their range. Bucks generally weigh between 150 and 300 pounds, does between 90 and 200 pounds. But in places like Florida or other tropical regions, they're much smaller, averaging only 75 to 110 pounds. Now, deer are crepuscular, meaning they're most active at dusk and dawn. And I'm sure you know that they're herbivores. They browse on twigs, grasses, leaves, nuts, fruits, and corn. What you may not know is that they will, if they're desperate and the opportunity presents itself, eat mice or nesting songbirds. Deer are ruminants and have a four-chambered stomach, which allows them to digest food while in the relative safety of cover, and to eat things that we humans can't, like some toxic fungi and poison ivy. Natural predators of deer include wolves, mountain lions, jaguars, and alligators. Other predators, like bobcats, coyotes, bears, and wolverine, prey mainly on fawns. To escape these predators, deer have evolved to be fast runners, excellent swimmers, and incredible jumpers. A white-tailed deer can jump over 8 feet vertically and almost 30 feet horizontally, which is about like jumping over a school bus lengthwise. When sleeping, bucks usually lie on their right side and face downwind. This lets them use their nose, ears, and eyes to detect danger in any direction. 
Deer sometimes graze together in herds, which are also called mobs or gangs, which seems pretty ironic for an animal as skittish as a deer. Bucks and does stay separate except for the mating season. In mountain or desert areas, deer may migrate from higher summer elevations to lower, warmer areas in the winter. But in general, deer are solitary, especially in the summer, with the basic social unit being a mother and her fawns. Does usually give birth to one fawn in their first year of breeding and two fawns each year after that. Fawns can walk shortly after birth and will begin to browse a little within a few days. However, for about the first four weeks, the mother will leave their fawns hidden among the vegetation. The fawn has no scent to draw predators at this age, and it will stay very still. Their spotted coat helps keep them camouflaged. Mother deer return to their fawns to nurse them several times per day during this time. People often think that if they see a fawn with no mother around, that the fawn has been abandoned, and with good intentions, they'll want to rescue the fawn. However, chances are high that the mother will return, and by trying to save the fawn, you're actually doing more harm than good. A mother deer may reject a fawn that smells like humans. After about four weeks, the fawns will start to follow mother as she forages, but continue to nurse until they're eight to ten months old. Male offspring disperse at one-year-old, but females generally stay with their mother until they're two. Now, one of the things that makes deer unique among mammals, though, is their antlers. Each year, males shed and then regrow their antlers. Antlers are bones and can grow up to half an inch per day, making them one of the fastest-growing tissues in the animal kingdom. They begin to grow in the late spring, covered with a highly vascularized tissue known as velvet, which is shed around the end of summer. In the summer, the buck's testosterone levels increase as the breeding season, or rut, approaches. This hormonal change also causes their neck to enlarge as it gains muscle. Antlers are only used during the rut to compete with other males. In order to be ready for this competition, the buck needs a strong neck. Prior to the rut, bucks will engage in sparring matches, pushing against other bucks, or even small trees to train for the big event. Once the females are ready, the bucks will compete for the right to mate with as many as possible. Generally, this competition isn't dangerous for the bucks, but it's not completely without risk. They can be gored by their opponent's antlers or even get their antlers tangled together and be unable to separate, which can lead to death as they exhaust themselves trying to get free. Males are often vulnerable to predation later in the rut because they're so singularly focused on mating, they often go without eating during this time. When all the does have been mated, the bucks shed their antlers sometime between December and February. Shed antlers are a great source of calcium in the woods and are often gnawed on by rodents, foxes, coyotes, bears, and other animals. Now, one last fact regarding white-tailed deer. You might be surprised to learn, or given our history, maybe you won't, that in the late 1800s and early 1900s, deer in the United States had been hunted to near extinction. Nebraska, for example, prohibited deer hunting beginning in 1907, and it wasn't resumed again until 1945. It's only been in recent years that white-tailed deer have returned to their historical pre-colonization numbers. All right, what's black and white and red all over? A skunk with a sunburn. <laughs> Skunks are cute, aren't they? But they're smelled more often than they're seen, unfortunately, often as a result of becoming roadkill. There are three species of skunk that are found in the United States. The spotted skunk, the striped skunk, and the hognose skunk. 
The hognose skunk is one of the largest skunks in the world, getting up to about three feet long and not very common. They have a single white stripe going down their backs and live in parts of Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and Colorado. Spotted skunks, as you might have guessed, don't have white stripes, but rather white spots. But it's the striped skunk that we usually think of when we imagine a skunk, a black body with white stripes, though there are 13 recognized subspecies. Spotted skunks and striped skunks are similar in size, averaging about two and a half feet long and weighing up to about 10 pounds. All skunks are members of the weasel family. They're primarily insectivores, and the bulk of their diet consists of beetles, caterpillars, grasshoppers, and crickets. That said, they're also omnivores, so they'll consume both vegetable matter like plants and fruits, and animal matter like mice, voles, the eggs and chicks of ground-nesting birds, amphibians, and earthworms. They have five claws on each front foot that are well adapted to digging. Skunks are probably best known for their smell, a chemical defense against predators. The chemical is produced in two glands located on either side of the anus. Each gland contains about two tablespoons of a thick, yellow, oily, and strong-smelling musk that, thanks to powerful muscles, can be sprayed at a predator from a distance of about 10 feet. The musk is not only smelly, it can cause burning of the eyes and nose. Even though cartoons depict skunks as walking around emitting a constant bad smell, this really isn't the case. A skunk may release a mere whiff of odor to repel a minor annoyance or as a warning, or if it's fleeing a predator it can't see, it might release a cloud of foul musk to stop the pursuer in its tracks. For its most intense, targeted attack, a skunk can twist its body into a U-shape so that both its head and its tail are facing the threat. Then it aims a stream of noxious liquid right at the enemy's face. Flexible nipples flanking the anus allow the skunk to precisely control the spray. But spraying is really a weapon of last resort. Prior to spraying, skunks will usually raise their tail, stamp their feet, and hiss before resorting to releasing the smelly stuff. Skunks are sometimes preyed on by great horned owls and other birds of prey, which incidentally don't have a great sense of smell, as well as coyotes, foxes, or other predators if they're desperate, because their chemical defense is pretty effective. Research shows that less than 5% of skunk mortality is due to predation. Nowadays, we have a tendency to view skunks as pests, something that has the potential to leave a long-lasting smell. But skunks are peaceful creatures, and they help keep insect and rodent pests away from your garden. And it wasn't that long ago that skunks were valued for a number of other reasons. Trappers and indigenous people regularly ate skunk meat, assuming it didn't release its musk before it died. The meat has been described as being tender, sweet, and more delicate than chicken. It was prized by Chinese immigrants who also used skunk gallbladder in traditional medicine, although whether or not there's any factual basis for its effectiveness, I don't know. The fat of the skunk was said to be an excellent lubricant, and the musk was actually used as a folk remedy for asthma. What I find most fascinating, though, is that skunks are easy to tame, and in the 1800s, they were often kept in barns to control mice and rats. But skunks were also prized for their fur, which is valued for being durable and having a rich luster. At one time, skunk was the second most harvested fur bearer behind the muskrat. The most sought-after pelts were those that were mostly black. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, foreign demand for skunk fur was high, and the mostly black specimens had been largely eliminated from the wild, so skunk farms became popular. 
1914, two million skunk pelts were sold in the United States. Skunks are relatively easy to breed and raise in captivity compared to other fur bearers, but skunk farming was not overly profitable to begin with, and the Great Depression put an end to skunk farms in the 1930s. Okay, let's talk trash pandas. That's right, raccoons. Raccoons can be found raiding trash cans from central and southern Canada all the way south through Central America. Like skunks, raccoons are omnivores. In fact, they've been described as the most omnivorous of all animals. Their diet is about evenly split between invertebrates like insects or crayfish, vertebrates, and plant matter. And they're scavengers, which is why they're happy raiding your trash can. I have to say that the raccoons here at Dispatches HQ are generally polite. Aside from the occasional pizza crust left out on top of the recycling bin, they don't usually make a mess when they get into the trash. Like deer, raccoons follow the Bergman rule. They tend to be smaller in the southern portion of their range, getting larger as you move north. In general, the average raccoon weighs between 10 and 30 pounds, but in the more northern parts of their range, they can actually get up to almost 60 when they've added weight before winter. As I mentioned in episode 12, raccoons don't hibernate, but go into a state of torpor during the coldest winter days, so a little extra fat gets them through the lean times. Now the two physical features we most associate with raccoons are their ring tail and black mask. Since raccoons are primarily nocturnal, the dark mask is assumed to enhance night vision by reducing glare. But the mask and tail rings also help them recognize other members of their species. The other thing raccoons are usually associated with is washing their food. In fact, their scientific name is Procyon loader, and loader is Latin for washer. But the truth is, raccoons don't actually wash their food. This is a misconception based on a couple of different facts. First of all, raccoons in the wild often dabble in the water near the shoreline, looking for food like crayfish or other invertebrates. They'll pick up the food item to examine it and may rub it to remove unwanted parts. This gives the appearance of washing, but it's not really dirt they're trying to remove. But the other reason for this behavior is that their front paws are protected by a thin layer of skin that becomes pliable when wet. The tactile sensitivity of raccoons' paws is increased if this rubbing action is performed underwater, since the water softens the hard layer covering the paws. Almost two-thirds of the area responsible for sensory perception in the raccoon's cerebral cortex is specialized for the interpretation of tactile impulses, more than any other animal. They're able to identify objects before touching them with vibrissa, basically whiskers, located above their claws. So dabbling in the water with their front paws enhances their sense of touch. But raccoons don't go out of their way to carry food to water in order to wash it. Another fun fact, raccoons are able to rotate their hind feet so they're pointing backwards, which lets them climb down a tree head first, an unusual ability for an animal of their size. Raccoons are also notable for their intelligence. Native American mythologies often portrayed raccoon as a trickster or a mischief maker, outsmarting other animals like coyote and wolf. And more recent research shows that raccoons are not only excellent problem solvers, they can remember the solution to a particular task for up to three years. Now, if raccoons are a problem at your house, the easiest solutions are to secure your trash cans and don't leave pet food outside. Raccoons are the primary reason I secure my chickens and their feed at night. Intentional feeding should be avoided. 
Raccoons are a major carrier of rabies, accounting for about 37% of recorded cases, not to mention distemper. In addition, raccoons establish community latrines, sites where they repeatedly deposit fresh feces on top of old feces in a specific area, and those feces can be a source of roundworms. Okay, lastly, let's talk about groundhogs, also known as woodchucks, or my favorite nickname for them, whistle pigs, because of the whistling alarm call they make. Groundhogs are squirrels. In fact, they're the largest member of the squirrel family. They generally average between 8.5 and 9 pounds, but will get up to 11 or more before entering hibernation in the fall. Their preferred habitat is open country and woodland edges. They're widely distributed throughout the Midwest, Northeast, and Eastern states, as well as throughout Canada. Groundhogs are primarily herbivores and can eat more than a pound of vegetation every day. How much wood would a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? A woodchuck would chuck all the wood he could chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood. So how much wood is that? Zero. A woodchuck would chuck zero wood. But they can chuck around six cubic feet of dirt, about 640 pounds worth, when digging their burrows. The burrow is used for safety, shelter in bad weather, hibernating, sleeping, mating, and raising young. They generally have two openings. One is the main entrance, the other a spy hole to look for danger. Burrows also have a separate chamber specifically for going to the bathroom. That's right, groundhogs dig themselves a bathroom. Groundhogs usually have two burrows, one for winter and one for summer, and they're rarely far from the entrance. Summer burrows are located in a more open area, while winter burrows are located in a more protected, brushy area and tend to be dug deeper to get below the frost line. This keeps the burrow a relatively constant temperature, generally just above freezing. Groundhogs are one of the animals that enter true hibernation in the winter. I talked about groundhog hibernation in episode 12, but let's review. Depending on their location, groundhogs enter hibernation in October and may hibernate for anywhere between 3 and 7 months. Normal body temperature for a groundhog is about 100 degrees, but during hibernation that will drop as low as 35 to 40 degrees. Their heart rate will go down to 4 to 10 beats per minute, and respiration, one breath every 6 minutes. While they may experience some brief periods of torpor or arousal during this time, while in the coma-like state, they don't wake up even if touched. By the time they emerge from hibernation, they'll have lost about half of their body weight. Now, in just a few days, we have a whole day dedicated to the groundhog. I'm talking, of course, about February 2nd, which is Groundhog Day, where we wake up a groundhog on the premise that it can tell us if we'll have an early spring or six more weeks of winter. Now, in just a few days, we have a whole day dedicated to the groundhog. I'm talking, of course, about February 2nd, which is Groundhog Day, where we wake up a groundhog on the premise that it can tell us if we'll have an early spring or six more weeks of winter. Now, in just a few days, we have a whole day dedicated to the groundhog. I'm talking, of course, about February 2nd, which is Groundhog Day, where we're going to wake up a groundhog on the premise that it'll tell us if we'll have an early spring or six more weeks of winter. Ha! You see what I did there? The tradition of Groundhog Day derives from a Pennsylvania Dutch superstition that if a groundhog emerging from its burrow on this day sees its shadow, it will retreat to its den and winter will persist for six more weeks. If it does not see its shadow, spring will arrive early. 
Actually, in its original form, February 2nd was known as Badger Day, and it was the badger that carried the responsibility of forecasting the end of winter. Although I'm not quite sure how that worked, because I guarantee they weren't dragging a badger out of its burrow. The Pennsylvania Dutch may be tough, but they're not fighting a badger tough. Just to be clear, a groundhog or a badger, or any other animal for that matter, seeing its shadow on February 2nd has no bearing on the start of spring-like weather. Let's look at the record of the most famous of all weather-predicting groundhogs, Pennsylvania's Puxatawney Phil. Although he was not named Puxatawney Phil until 1961, a groundhog in Puxatawney, Pennsylvania, has been predicting the end of winter consistently since about 1900. Impartial estimates put the accuracy of those predictions at between 35 and 40 percent. A coin flip would be more accurate. Although, Phil's inner circle claims 100 percent accuracy and that any deviation is the fault of the person in charge translating Phil's message making a mistake in their interpretation. Regardless of what Phil says, spring begins on March 20th, no matter how much we might want it to come sooner. Well, Wild Wanderers, that brings us to the end of another episode of the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. If you enjoy the podcast and want to support future episodes, please consider becoming a patron for as little as $5 a month. It's easy to do. Just visit patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. You can also follow Dispatches from the Forest on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. If you have a question or comment about the podcast, feel free to send me an email at dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.